Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. So pumped for today's show. I have a good friend, Ben Hayes, who's the sous chef at Flagship at Facebook, based in Altoona, Iowa. Ben, thank you for being on. Hey, Jensen. How you doing, man? Good to be I'm here. doing really well. We're going to go way back for people, all right? I've mentioned a lot on this show that... You know, I made my bones and started in the industry in Ames at my uncle's restaurants, did culinary school at DMAC. Ben Hayes was in my crew. What was there, like eight, nine, ten of us that were in a crew through our time at culinary school. So we have lots of great stories from that time. And it's really, really cool to connect. I think we're going to talk a lot about kind of how we journey through the industry and how we kind of always find our way back to good people. And I count Ben among some of the best. So, Ben, tell people very quickly, kind of flagship of Facebook. What the hell does that mean? Sure. Hey, Jensen, great question. Um, you know, uh, people hear Facebook, but they don't really know what flagship means. Right. So uh, Facebook has um, brought on a third party, which is flagship, but it's exclusive. So they want to keep them here for, for life, so to speak. So I work at a data center, which houses a lot of the data for the Midwest, which is really important right. for Facebook. And yeah. what we do here is we do breakfast and lunch. So if I wanted to generalize it, I would say, hey, we got a cafe. Um, but that would be disservicing what we actually do. So, you know, we like I said, we do a cafe model where, um, you know, it's all you can eat, grab and go type stuff. Um, it's very high end. And, uh, you know, most of the, uh, the actual people that we serve, I think 80 percent of them are males here, most in their 20s and 30s. So they're wow. open to new foods. They're the menu changes every day. Um, you know, we get to bring in a lot of great stuff, you know, if it's from the fish guys out of Minnesota or working with local vendors. So the, the food that we do here is well beyond any of the cafe food that I've ever had the pleasure of eating or serving or cooking. And um, really what's going on here is something that's uh, kind of unprecedented. In the next 10 years, this this uh, data center campus will be even larger. We'll be servicing, I think, six or seven kitchens at that point in time. We'll be doing over a thousand meals, I think, by that time, too. And um, really, I just there's nothing but growth in our in our future. So building a good core and um, kind of getting our name out there. We don't we're not open to the public. We're private. So I think there's yeah. like buzz or a little bit of chatter um, about us. And so, you know, that's really the in a, in a nutshell. You know, we are a cafe that does very high end food and, and it's all free. So we don't have that dynamic of the, the money handling or customer being upset. I like it. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I'm very fascinated in the model investment in culture, investment in food. We hear about the, you know, the campus of Google's campus in, uh, in California and kind of that dynamic. I'm very interested that they started to scale that model out, what that looks like on the day to day in your world. That is always, I want to take people back. So your career started, were you working in restaurants before culinary school or was culinary school your first foray into the kitchen? Yeah. So to be honest, like I did have some jobs heading into culinary school, but I was very raw. 
Um, I worked at, uh, I managed concession stands, trying to, yeah. to understand some of the money handling and stuff. And then I also worked at a fine dining restaurant called Basil Prosperi over in the East Village in Des Moines. Um, and that's changed over to a couple different names. There's still the, yeah. the, uh, the namesake down in uh, 801, but uh, that's where I got my cooking chops. But to be honest, real quick, is um, I went to culinary school without chops. And I think you and Tony and some of those guys had already kind of um, scratched for your own worms, learned some stuff. And you guys were formalizing that through the education. Yeah. I was my eyes were wide open. I didn't really have a ton of uh, industry experience. So I think having people like yourself and others to kind of know that they weren't all rookies like myself helped me kind of get an idea of like, what do the heavy hitters look like a little bit? Yeah, I definitely didn't even think that I was going to go to school coming going into the restaurants, right? When I'm 17, I go and work at Wallabies. I get my face smashed in every single night, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So I was a dishwasher in a year. I was one of the top guys running the line, and it was just you find your people, right? You find your tribe for sure, and I felt that. But culinary school was, uh, I think it was Tony, Tony Johnson, Anthony Johnson, who owns uh, what is it called? Brick Brick City Grill, right? In oh, Albia? Right. Yeah. And Albia owns a restaurant down there. Great friend of ours. A uh, super talented guy was like, I'm going to go to school. And I was like, I could see myself doing that. And so, yeah. And the way they set it up, just kind of give people a little insight. We basically had like a team, right? It was a kitchen brigade and there was eight, nine, 10 of us, something like that. We're basically a unit and a couple people like switched in and out, but yourself, myself, Tony, we're like that crew. And, you know, we formed multiple menus and kind of ran our own restaurant a few different times, worked on different projects together. Anybody who's had the experience might have had that experience, but definitely was tight knit for sure. One of the things that I noticed with you right off the bat was you had like leadership. You absolutely had kind of that leadership and and that drive 100 percent. Like you were willing to run over every single wall. If you knew what to do or not, you were going to run through that wall. Where did that come from for you? Where did that leadership and that like go-getter mentality come from? Sure. I think it's a good question. Um, I think that that's what dif like, differentiates me from some chefs. I wasn't behind the stove with my grandma learning how to make sauce when I was younger, Jensen. Gotcha. Um, instead, I was in sports. And when I grew up, I was like, I always told my mom who was past now, but I told her like a lot of guys do when they're younger, you're, I'm going to buy you a car. I'm going to do this type of thing. I'm going to make it in sports. And, and I really thought that I was going to. Um, but then once I got into to high school, I realized that that wasn't really the, the best option, you know. So, you know, getting to culinary school for me um, really happened because I started really working out a lot in sports and, and competition there. So that drive, I think I really took it once sports stopped for me at the end of high school and I transitioned and went to culinary school that I was missing something. And I realized mm. that I could take that drive or that passion and apply it since I wasn't utilizing it. And I still feel like that even in the way I manage or lead that competition, like head to head isn't always great, but having some type of a competitive model to try to have people achieve or work hard or against each other to get their best. I feel like it served me well. I, I noticed that because especially you and I, and Tony at times and a few other people kind of emerged, there definitely was an interesting dynamic because both of you are, you and I are leaders of leaders, right? Like we're always going to find a way to like lead from the front. Yeah, both of us are always like about team mentality. So I think on paper, it would seem like two like alpha type, like a personality types are going to like butt heads. And maybe you did feel like that, but I never felt like that. I always felt like we were gonna figure shit out and we were gonna do it together. 
And we definitely had to put other people on our back and carry them. And for sure, that was something we always felt like that we needed to do. How did you balance that out? Was it always team sports for you? So you always understood that. How did you manage to not, you know, be the one who had to be at the forefront, even though you were leading from whatever position you were at at any given time? Sure. Um, you know, starting in culinary school, I think that what I realized is that even if there's leaders in a group, the way that you think might be slightly different. There's more than one way to get to that end result. And so being open and then realizing that even if I had a game plan, like, oh, we should do it this way, hearing somebody else say it and realizing, well, they both get to that same end result, but maybe there's different ways of going about it. So I realized, I think early on and after seeing some of the guys I look up to like yourself that, that, hey, you know, have your own opinion, but to be able to bounce ideas, this whole chef world is, I realized it then that it, it's, instead of trying to be, it's about me instead of just opening it up and realizing that the truly you learn every day. And so, you know, trying to have a what I think, but then listening to what other people think and, and then hearing it, I think that I was more open to that, especially in culinary school, because I realized that it wasn't just my ideas that were great. Instead, there was a lot of good ideas being kicked around. Yeah, I love that. I always felt like the best ideas, I never knew who started it, right? It was always like it started somewhere and it was just a spitball. And I definitely remember that. Again, you, myself, Tony, would just like go fast. And you could tell like our banter was so quick. We were always getting to a solution so fast. And some people were like, ah, whatever those guys say. And for sure, you know, finding a way to include people, because here's the thing. If the garmanger doesn't hold their own, if if the fish station doesn't hold their own, it doesn't matter how you good you are on the pass. You can't do anything without a strong team. And so I, I really appreciate that. Memories of those times. I, I want to throw a couple out there and maybe we just banter about this for a couple minutes. I remember, I don't know why I go straight to this, but we had a hard ass chef, Chef Paler. All right. So anybody who went to Des Moines Area Community College, now the Iowa Culinary Institute, uh, remembers Robert Anderson, amazing, um, amazing mentor, somebody I learned a ton from. Paler was just this rough neck, hard dude. And I remember a time where I can't remember what the dinner was. There was some dinner that our crew was in charge of, or I don't even think we were in charge of, but some, somehow we were supposed to be in charge of something. And like some coolers got left open and we get to school and there's a trash can full of spoiled food. And he makes us stick our elbows into spoiled food and like told us to put our arms together and like smell. And I remember I was the first one there and I'm pretty sure you were right behind me yeah. right there saying, you know what? It wasn't me. It wasn't actually our job. I distinctly remember that as I'm saying it now, but I'm going to jump into that shit before anybody else and like take one for the team. And I'm pretty sure the whole team didn't end up having to do it. Once he got his point across, I think he got in a little trouble for that. I don't think you're supposed to do that no. to students, but do you remember that? I do. And I can definitely remember I wanted to get Paler's like um, uh, acknowledgement, acceptance. And yeah. I was rookie comment in there. And it was just like it was good to have him as a first year because it's like, dude, you know, I thought you would be friendly and nice. But to have that first stop be somebody that's going to maybe be somebody in the industry. We were first kitchen manager or chef. Right. So and I do remember I mean, I don't remember everything about culinary school. It's been a minute now, but that is one of the times I do remember. And that's why it sticks to me about Paler, too, is, you know, that uh, even after being in, you know, as, a, as an educator, that he wasn't afraid to not. He remembered his roots. You know, sometimes it's taken a hard approach to get your point across and maybe sometimes you get in trouble, but sometimes it's needed. So, you know, I do look fondly back on Paler and also um, Chef Phil Carey was someone I butted heads with the first year. And dude, the second 
here. <laughs> I just really like the guy. I realized that it's like, you know, he wants to have a certain standard. And uh, if you don't hit that, then he's not going to be friendly. And then second year was just boom, you know, my eyes opened yeah. up and, and somebody I don't necessarily contact as much anymore, but I still look back on, but like, dude, my first year was great. I needed broken down a bit. Yeah. needed that kick in the ass. And I think people that have sports background and played sports definitely get that where it's like that hard nose coach mentality a little bit. And and I, we're going to touch on this a, a little bit more because there is some strength in in going through the fire. And there's also it's just not sustainable. Right. And we see that now in redefining our kitchen culture, because we definitely came up in a time where getting a plate thrown at your head was a badge of honor. And maybe it was for like four seconds. But we realized it doesn't sustain like you just can't keep that mentality and that approach and we're having to redefine that and some people i think you and i really have embraced it some people struggle with that because they think it's my way or the highway and it's like it is it means most people take the highway and that's just the reality of it so uh, i i reflect back on that as well i also remember a trip to vegas <laughs> oh. i'm just gonna pause hover on i remember a trip to vegas i don't remember the trip to vegas but i remember we went to vegas because we have a, a there's a sister city, Saint Etienne, France, that sends chefs over to the school and gets to interact with them. And it was it was I don't know a an anniversary year or something. So like twelve chefs and their whole families came, and they ended up coming to Vegas with us. Very formative time, like getting to interact with chefs from another country, from France, where we came up. I mean, hot cuisine and idolizing what was happening in France was all of our teaching. And going to Vegas and taking that trip. We saw food. I mean, I remember Louis Trey at like the the sky place, whatever, in, in one of the hotels. And I barely remember any of that. But I'm I'm fascinated in the fact that we came from Iowa and we knew a certain thing about like what food was. And that was one of those moments cooking with those French chefs and going to Vegas that that I remember. And around the same time, you got the French laundry cookbook. I talk about this all the time, how that book changed us. And cooking with those chefs and going to Vegas, it changed everything for me. And all that happened within a short period of time. Maybe reflect on that. Did you recognize that you were seeing something that we had never seen before? Yeah. I mean, thinking about it now, for sure. Um, during that time, I, I guess, you know, I, I probably didn't grasp the situation as much as I would have liked to. Probably had a sure. little, many cocktails. But I'll yeah. be honest with you, that is a I remember that very clearly. A lot of the stuff. Um you know, not staying up all night the last night before going to the airport, but you know, some of those other things like going to, I think it was nine steakhouse and the dude said he was on a, on a, a mandolin with shallots. I think he said for three or four hours straight to do the mead. And so then it was just, I think that for me too, I realized the world was big. And, you know, once you start to get a little yeah. bit of ops or whatever, that you think that you got that entitlement or you're good. I think that I didn't take it the wrong way, but I realized once we, you know, the French chefs were there, we got out to Vegas that gosh, the culinary landscape is huge and yeah. what we're doing here in Iowa is great. Um, but especially at that time that it was still much um, more rustic and the meat and potatoes. So that to have to see that yes was perfect because then it really allowed you to think about like, what are the opportunities out there outside of just the Midwest? Yeah. And so I'll, I want to circle back to that now, as you're thinking about kind of your food style and kitchen and some of the stuff that you're doing first, the food, and then we'll talk about that culture piece that we alluded to the food. We find ourselves sometimes at a certain point, I was guilty of this, trying way too hard, just trying to put too much shit on the plate to prove that I could because I knew what foie gras and caviar was and I was going to be able to manipulate them into this magical blah. And most of the time, 
you know, the varying degrees of failure within that. And all the times that I just tried to do something simple and straightforward and honest and like respected the ingredient and the human who like brought that ingredient to the plate, be it the farmer, the fisherman or the line cook who helped create that. I saw success. Have you reflected on that? Do you see that playing out? Are you now maybe a more humble and more less insecure chef? I feel like for me, it was insecurity being like I had to prove something. Now I got nothing left to prove. I could just put really meaningful things on a plate. Sure. Well, you said it really well there. Like, I think I've tried to overwork food for since I graduated culinary school. I don't think I've really, and it takes a while to find your style. I mean, there's guys in their twenties that are putting out that are, they're staging. And then in a couple of years that they're able to run their own restaurant, do some really awesome food. But I didn't, maybe because I didn't get to travel as exclusively, you know, as much as some other people. But honestly, like I didn't find my style. I, I finally, I think over the, I'm 36 now, um, the past two or three years, I think that it really started like the light bulb happened. You, it started yeah. to click. Um, but then I stopped trying to work as hard. Instead, I focused on the flavors that I thought, like I focused on the end result or what I wanted to and then worked back instead of trying to like just throw a bunch of stuff and then know that I was thinking more was better. And that truly yeah. that Italian approach or the, the simple approach works great. And so, and I'm still defining my style. Like people ask like, what's your cuisine? You know, right. to be honest, like, you know, I can put something together like on my resume or on paper. Oh, it sounds elegant, but is it really true? Like, uh, man, and I think that it's still, it's ongoing. I hope that in the next five years that, you know, the landscape here in the Midwest continues to evolve and the palates do that, you know, that I'll be able to refine my style even more. So there's some chefs in the community that are being able to do that now. Um, but I'm still, I would like to think that, and I'm not afraid to say it, I'm a great leader and I, I'm really strong in the kitchen and I put out some great food, but when it comes to it, I don't feel like that there's no entitlement. Like there's so much to learn. And even in Iowa and the Des Moines area, some of these chefs are doing some really neat, cool stuff and can execute it every night. So, you know, I am humble when it comes to that, but yes, for 15 years, I guess that I didn't have a style, but I thought that I was good. You know, I put out great Midwestern food and, you know, but that's okay now because it allows me to stop having that um, entitlement instead just focus on like, what are we trying to do? Let's put out the best food, but let's not try to overwork it, especially when you have such great food in this state. Yeah. The great ingredients. I mean, that is something that I absolutely did not understand when we were here and now having done so much work across the food system, come back here. I'm like, man, like the the breaded pork tenderloin needs to be up there with like chowpino in san francisco or chowder in you know the new england or etouffee and beignets in new orleans like it is one of the most amazingly iconic foods and for anybody who doesn't know you're talking pork loin pounded out tenderloin pounded out till it's that big and it comes billowing out of the bun and it is hand breaded, deep fried, and usually some kind of like mayonnaise, mustard, maybe a little bit of raw onion, a little bit of shredded lettuce. Uh, so good. And I would never would have given that sandwich credit. It was it was nothing that I wanted to mess with. Now it's the only thing that I want. Right? Like sure. you come you come full circle that. So the ingredients are really great. Let's connect those ingredients now. You kind of have a new approach, a new outlook to kind of your cooking style, your leadership in the kitchen culture you, the people now we talked about this and saying you know like we're investing in the human capital in restaurants in a different way now and if we're not we're not going to make it and so i'm fascinated in that how are you now leading a team 
And before we started recording, you said, you know, the most badass crew that you've ever had. And you're not at this super high-end restaurant, right? So why are you able to do that? And let's talk about your people a little bit. Sure. Well, to, to lead out, why is it possible? How can we recruit, retain? We have virtually zero turnover here. Um, I mean, there's a reason for it. You know, like, so why do people go into restaurants? Because they're driven and they have that kind of thing, working nights, weekends, holidays. They're good with it. But truly, yeah. People want to be able to pay their bills and then have that, um, you know, make work seems meaningful. But what is it here? You got a work life balance. You get to work with incredible food. The budgets are nice, um, you know, pay time off, all those things. But it doesn't interfere with your ability to still create and be happy and, and proud of what we do, especially since we change yeah. daily. Um, so I think that that speaking on that, that has been the drive to, to be able to get some of the best people. Um, but what it came down to is not, it's, we're still semi unknown because we don't serve the public. So what happened is, is how do you peel off some of the best cooks in the community? You know, generally you're going to have an end somewhere. I mean, you don't want to talk to a sous chef and steal their whole brigade when you're opening up, but that's what happens. And, um, cool thing was, is I've had a uh, Lulu or uh Lewis Smith who went to culinary school with us and yeah. he was a diner cook, you know, and he managed that. But now he is our, our lead cook here for one of our, our kitchens. And he actually uh, recruited several people. And he told me that when I first came aboard uh, two years ago, back in August of 18, um, I think I got a couple guys. And to be honest, like I, I looked at them and you never can tell some kid that just, you know, has his hat on backwards and curly right. hair throw down. Yeah. That's what we found out too, Jensen. And, uh, you know, and so I think that then once people started to know and see on Facebook, like, oh, David's out there. Ben's out there. What's going on and why would that be the case? And why, as some people start to get in their 30s and start to have families, they still want to be able to do restaurant quality food, um, but be able to do so where they can still manage their life and still have some of those nights, weekends and holidays. And so I don't feel bad. I mean, there's been plenty of years that I went by, but like I got away from the restaurant. I'm not looked at like that same chef. You know, yeah. you're not a restaurant chef. Don't act like it. I'm not going to feel that way anymore. I know the food that we do, it can always get better. But instead, it's like, talk about a perfect opportunity to have all of your energy and not work 16 or 18 hours a day and be able to put out some great food. I love that. Who else is on your team? Well, let me back up, Lulu. So we went to culinary school as well. Somebody like that, like, what do they represent? I, I want any, there are thousands and thousands of Lulus across the country. We call them unsung hospitality heroes. Like they're the people that are the bedrock of our industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we just don't give them enough credit so often. So somebody like Lulu, and then maybe let's talk about some other people, but who are they in a kitchen? Like, what do they mean as a leader in the kitchen to have somebody like that, that you can lean on, that you can depend on? Yeah, I think it's a, I wouldn't be a successful, obviously I wouldn't be successful without them. We're in a growing company right now. And in this place here is just, you know, it's just moving really fast. And, um, you know, to be able to have somebody, I think what comes down to me as a chef and as a person, like I don't allow a lot of people in my circle of trust until it's earned and vice versa. Lou has earned that and consistently done that over the years. So what makes Louie great is, is it's his skill set. He has a good set of skills. You know, he's got a positive attitude. He's got those attributes that you look for. But, you know, there's a term called Iowa nice, you know, and that's usually not a great term because it's like, oh, shit, they're Iowa nice. You know, they don't yeah. mind. <laughs> Instead, though, it's like think about it like Southern hospitality. You know, if you can manipulate and not in a bad way, but if you can 
do things to encourage people to, you know, and, and make them feel good about what they're doing, then obviously you can get the best out of them generally. And so even if that's not like his, he's not talking about what he's trying to do, his ability to connect with people, whether they're on the same level or lower than him and be able to articulate that information just makes Louis great. So there is like, I would say there's probably thousands of Louis types, oh, yeah. but they wouldn't serve as well here as far as like, just knowing that like the groups of people we have, yeah, they're cooks and some of them are hardcore, but Louis has a way of, you know, just making work seem fun. And that's not always the case when it's so, when you're in a high end place and it's just boom, 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 but we have that ability to have fun. And so Truly, we have a low turnover because we have a good culture. There's happiness for the most part. It's not like some days don't suck, but oh yeah, that's what it is. That's what I think Louis represents to me. It's like he's got the skills to do the job, but it's like what's that extra thing that he is doing that truly makes him a great leader or a great team member, and that is it. You, you mentioned low turnover. Who are some of the other people on your team that have been there for a while? Sure. So, you know, let me throw it out there. I've got a guy named uh, Doug McPherson, and Doug – Worked at Menards for like 15 or 20 years and we recruited him. All right. Yeah. So he's got his curly hair. And so why do I bring up the dishwasher? Well, we know it's important. We want to keep him. Yes. And so what does he do now for us? Well, Doug also is the, um, not only is he the DMO or dish machine operator, but he's also um, the receiver. So as far as receiving, obviously a lot of product through all these secured channels here, you know, but what I've, what's great about him and why I bring him up is it's like, it's still a high pressure environment. Doug is, I mean, how many people can wash dishes for eight to 12 hours a day and just keep doing it for many, many years and have a great attitude about it and be able to have other dishwashers see that. So you can't replace it. I couldn't replace that. It's hard to teach it. That's in something inside of him. I absolutely love that dishwasher. Most important person in the building for sure. The company, Facebook, right? What does that exactly mean when you're working for a company like Facebook, you know, you, you hear it and you see it and it's such a big company and there's so much, I don't know, mystique about it. It's like unclear exactly what that means, especially in the hospitality industry. You know, you hear about, you know, these Disneyland esque of everything's free and it's utopia out there and they have all these food concepts and everyone's on a bouncy chair and they're in their yoga studio during, you know, during their lunch break, which is half the day. Like we just don't know, like it feels very different than the hustle and bustle that we're used to. So break that down just a little bit more for us, you know, working for Facebook as somebody who's grounded out in the kitchen for years and years and years, talk about the the differences that somebody could expect. Sure. Well, let me lead off by saying, what do most people think? The same thing I thought, which is if you've watched the movie, the internship with Vince Vaughn and um, the other guy, Wilson in there, what yes. do you, they go in there like kind of a banana off three bananas. It's not that much different here. It's not like the first day when people see that they do the same thing like, oh, I can get five sugar free Red Bulls and you don't pay for it. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's different like that. And so obviously, too, then as far as like when you're in a kitchen in a normal restaurant, you you have this or even a banquet kitchen, you know, it's, it's a certain feel here. Yeah. Most people wouldn't see it because we're private, but they're open kitchens, a lot of glass and stainless. So they're beautiful, um, but they're open. And uh, what's interesting, too, is we keep the radio real loud. So that way that creates the heartbeat and the vibe for the cafe itself. So we're not trying to hide that. Um, but it is at Jensen. Like the biggest thing is, is like, can you imagine working a kitchen job and you don't hear that tick, 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 tick? You don't hear the chatter of the yeah. machine printing off tickets. We do not have that. Granted, we still have rushes, but so to take that dynamic out, 
We're not changing over money. We don't have cash pickups and drop offs. So the whole dynamic of serving and executing the food as well as the customer interaction is completely different. And it's something that I think the first couple of days and week that you learn to crave it. Like it was awesome working the line and then kind of having a little bit of fear or something, knowing like, am I going to be able to get this out? We still have that, but we have the ability to not have a customer that's over there. Like I pay $10 for this. Like, where's it at? Mm-hmm. You know, and if they don't like it, guess what? They're going to put it into the compost and get something else if they wanted it. So, you know, at first it was like, it was an eye opener. like, whoa, this is crazy. But I think once you get past some of the, the fireworks and everything, you know, it's free for the culinary staff. I think it was just like, wow, this is really cool. Like we can take a lot of the stressors out. And then what do we then do? We focus on the food and service end, which everybody talks about. But truly, if most of our time is spent finishing the prep, firing the food, but then really focusing on that and then the customer instead of like everything that goes in between, I really feel like that allows us to take care of the customer better. Yeah, it feels like this reduced friction. It's funny you mentioned the uh, the ticket machine because we all hate that sound, right? Yet it's funny. People have been joking about how they miss that sound now. Isn't that funny? Like you kind of like in this time of COVID where everything's crazy, people are like, God, I just kind of want you know, that printer sound. I was like, somebody needs to do that as a sleep app on their phone or something. So what you said was very interesting to me. And I I said it as reducing friction. You're changing the dynamic and you're changing the expectation. Yet you, you mentioned the word fear. And I think for you, it's like that anxious, like butterflies in your stomach kind of energy. You still hold a high standard. The first thing that occurs to me when you're in this different scenario is the potential for you not to hold the standard because there's nothing holding you accountable, so to speak, like that guest feedback, like the exchange of of money, right? Those things set a standard. Have you struggled with that? Is it automatic? Where does that fit into being able to hold that high level of standard without what we assumed was what was keeping us at that high standard with some of the commerce evolved in that? Sure. Well, I think that it's something to be said. And maybe other organizations that are sister accounts that they might struggle with uh with that more, I mean, if you if if uh, we know that when uh, everything's riding on the line, people generally can perform better. When you got those looser days, they don't. So, in some right. aspects, yeah, like knowing that that fear, that anxiousness, knowing that you want to perform at your highest level to knock the tickets out and hold your station down, um, you know, it's not exactly there. But the reality is, is when we played up and we do a lot of small plate played up, and um, you're just, it's not like you're in the back of the kitchen. I mean, you're so upfront that you are exactly what you put out. And so it's not like you put the plate up in the window and the waitress takes it out and you can hide in back and know that you smashed that steak and it went past medium or whatever. So, and and the thing is too, is like, you know, I've got guys and and I can't always be on the line. I've got a lot of other responsibilities sometimes too. And, but I think that trying to identify, and it took a little bit, is like, even if the menu changes every day is like, what is the standard or at least what is the bare minimum that we want to hit as far as, the manipulation. So, you know, there's always been some times where like if the menu changes daily, it's hard to um, standardize recipes, do that. But right. instead, I think that it makes us want to work that much harder because we realize there's more room for error. I love it. I think that's such an important thing. The investment 
in the culture, the food quality, the interaction. It's all things that restaurants need to be paying attention to, right? We really need to be paying attention to it. Like I get it. People right away, I was like, we don't have Facebook money. I know you don't have Facebook money. Yet investing in people and culture and innovation is why Facebook got to where Facebook is. Restaurants have the same opportunity. You might be playing a slightly different game, but you still have the same opportunity. And so I really appreciate hearing that. Ben, amazing conversation. So good to see you. So good to catch up. I was so excited when we connected to be on this. I think it's uh, I think it's amazing. 15 years later, and it feels like we got the same banter. I, I want to do some menu development with you right now and come up with you know our, our Italian menu for next month's uh, circuit of culinary school. It feels like so familiar. You know what I mean? Oh man, I'm down. No, it, it does. It feels like that. Uh, even though we haven't necessarily stayed in contact and stuff, you know, like you know, maybe it's every couple months or year, like. You know, um, people that are cut from the same cloth know it. And I think that that's a lot of chefs and also us too, gents. And so it's been really nice to be able to connect. And even through right now, through this COVID thing, you know, it's like be able to chefs do to stay interconnected and figure out ways that we can get better, share best practices. I mean, what that didn't happen years ago when we didn't have social media. So in some ways, technology has really benefited us. I could not agree more. I appreciate it. Ben Hayes, so good to see you. Thank you for being on the show. You have a great rest of your day, my friend. Jeff Jensen, thank you, brother. All right, cheers. Take care. Yes, Ben Hayes, a good friend. I mean, right away, I just so many memories flooding back in. And, and here's the thing, years and years and years later, we went on different paths through different places, worked different things, yet we are still connected because none of, none of it matters. The only thing that matters is humans. I'm going to say it again and again. The only thing that matters is humans. And being connected to people is timeless. It just is. And so I'm so grateful to have those memories, to be able to have a conversation with Ben and Tony Johnson, who was in my wedding, Carlos Uribe, who was you know my roommate when I was 17, and the baddest line cook I've ever worked with still to this day was in my wedding. Like, the humans are connected to us and all the food memories that we have, it's always somebody else was there. And I think that's an important thing to reflect on. All right, Sophie, real quick. The only thing that matters is humans. Very good, Sophie, ca capturing that. Uh, any couple yeah. takeaways from you? That was fun. That was, that really was a fun. lot of fun. I, yeah. um, I thought it was so funny, the story about um, the, oh man, you left a cooler open. Man, I was just cringing being like, oh, it was, it was really nasty. I mean, there was like, so mad. like moldy vegetables and I'm pretty oh. sure there's raw chicken, like putrid raw. It was, it was nasty. <laughs> so pretty bad. sure that Chef Paler got in a lot of trouble and had to go on oh. suspension for that. I don't think oh you're supposed God. to do that, but no. I was all about it. I was like, I'm going right. to leave. I was literally Food the waste. first one there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can imagine that. I can imagine 17 year old you. Yeah, I was not afraid. Well, I was 20 something at okay. that point, but I was, yeah. yeah, if something had to be done, no matter what, it was my responsibility to like lead from the front. I was always a believer in that for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, also really loved the, uh, the reference to the, um, the intern movie. Because I just yeah. saw that movie and I was like, oh, is it just like that? Oh my God, it's just like that. That's amazing. That's so, so. funny. I, I saw you behind the scenes just like cracking up. I was like, oh, she knows exactly what he's talking about. I know what you're talking Super about. Super perfect. Yeah. yeah, I'm very interested in that. I want to find a way for us to connect the dots between the level of investment and I get it. Like they have so much money. So I much. get it. 
yet they're still investing. And investing is investing, no matter how much money, the mindset of investing is investing. And we're always in the cut and control mentality too often in restaurants, not the growth and investment mindset. And so I really want to find ways that we can creatively get to that. Even if we're not playing with the same bankroll, the investment mindset, it can still be exactly the same. So uh, amazing. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you, Ben. Great show today. Really appreciate being in Iowa this week is awesome. Super, super awesome. And I'm humbled to kind of, again, come back to my roots a little bit. You might see a couple other little uh, things coming out uh, over the weeks of just showing off what's happening here. I think it's important. I want to have more conversations. And I'm very interested to find out from you what it was like watching a week of episodes from kind of focused on a, a more singular location. It's not something we've done before. So I'm interested on a little feedback, reach out to us, let us know. We might be doing some more of that kind of focusing the conversation around a specific group, a specific area, whatever that might be. All right, everyone appreciate you. Thank you so much for watching. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the best served podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at best served podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.